0: Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning into the EY podcast, the podcast of the European Youth Parliament, the Netherlands, um, leading up to the National Selection Conference in March, where over 100 high school students from all over the Netherlands will come together digitally to discuss pressing issues on the European level. Um, we're currently talking to experts in the field to gather as much information and context as we can. Um, today, we are discussing the topic of Sede, the Committee on Security and Defense, Uh, which revolves around the implications of quantum computing on cryptography and the cybersecurity of the EU. With us is Paul Verhage, who is a data scientist at The Hague Center for Strategic Studies, um, and who was a co-author of the report in 2019, Understanding the Strategic and Technical Significance of Technology for Security, Implications of Quantum Computing within the Cybersecurity Domain. Um, Paul, uh, welcome Uh, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Um, so, before we get into the uh, politics of uh, those discussions, I think it would be good to first get into the technical stuff. Um, mm-hmm. to starting off very general, what is cybersecurity and why is it important? Okay, so cybersecurity is a
1: very large topic. It has a lot of different dimensions. Uh, for the context of quantum computing, cybersecurity mostly refers to the ability to encrypt your data. And to make sure that that encryption cannot be broken. There are other things as well, and it's technical standards so there's stuff like continuity of your system, et cetera. But for cross printing specifically, that thing is important. So there's encryption protocols that we use to make sure that data and information is only accessible to people that are supposed to be uh, having access to it. That is the most important part. It's important as a whole, because you just don't want people accessing data that they shouldn't be accessed to. Uh, data is hugely important. It's important for your own privacy. Um, it's important for military operations. Uh, sometimes you don't want people knowing what you're doing. And for all those things, it's important you have algorithms and encryption tools that allow you to prevent unauthorized access to your systems and un- unauthorized access to your data.
0: Okay, that's a very good point. And if we um, maybe look further at cybersecurity, obviously there's the pressing issue of data privacy of individuals. Um, mm-hmm. I can imagine there's also a geopolitical or a more global context that's also very relevant to cybersecurity. Like, to what extent um, should we be afraid of digital warfare in that sense? How um, exposed are we or vulnerable? Ooh, um, I'm not necessarily a domain expert in that, but what I can
1: say is that as increasingly large parts of your society become digitized, your attack surface increases. So there's more and more entry points basically for potentially malicious actors to make use of. Um, and as that attack service increases, it's much harder to play defense to play offense. If you play offense, you'll need to find one sort of vulnerability and you can execute it. If you play defense, you need to not only know where your vulnerabilities are, but you need to manage all of them. Uh, there are numerous incidents where uh, you can have hard effects from cyber attacks. So you can break dams and this sort of stuff. Uh, you can destroy power plants, et cetera. You can destroy money in that sense as well. Um, and there's also the softer side of things. so you can information meddling, election interference, all that sort of stuff, um, as it's getting more and more relevant for you to have access to online stuff, to data, to internet, etc., um, it also becomes a kind of dependency thing. Right? If I don't know if you find yourself out of battery with your phone recently. It's, it's terrible, right? You don't know where you are, yeah. you don't know what time it is, you don't know where you're going, you don't know where you should be going, so you can't see your calendar anymore. <laughs> um, so a small disruption to those kinds of services can actually have a really, really a big effect. So it, yeah, it's a vulnerability. And obviously geopolitics is back. Um, some argue it's never been gone. But competition and the digital side of um, the military activities is something that's looked at by most militaries. So cyber warfare, both in defensive and in the offensive measures, but also human behavior operations. So trying to influence uh, people through often digital means, so social media, influencing,
0: etc. Yeah. I, and I also think that's a really interesting point. What you're saying is um, cybersecurity isn't necessarily only about protecting data itself, but also all of the systems that we use to sort of manage our infrastructure, our society, which could be anything from energy plants, uh, any other form of infrastructure. Um, so yeah. as we move I mean, yeah. more digitally, we become more vulnerable in that.
1: Yeah, basically, uh, you're just creating increasingly large dependencies on a particular technology. So that technology needs to be securitized, uh, otherwise you have a problem.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think then we, we have quite clear what cybersecurity is, why it's so important. Um, we can sort of make the step to quantum computing. Um, so what essentially is quantum computing and what threat does it pose to the cybersecurity, which is obviously a very challenging and large topic, Um, Mm. but if we can sort of break it down uh, shortly, then I think that would be great. Sure, so quantum computing
1: is a computing device that uses quantum mechanics or the physics of quantum, quantum physics to uh, do calculations. What does that actually mean? Uh, In a nutshell, basically uh, a normal computer operates with using bits, so ones or zeros. Uh, This is called a Boolean variable. So something is either true or it is not true. Uh, Now, this is something that we're fairly confident with, binary code, all this sort of stuff. It either rains or it doesn't rain. Quantum computing works differently. So quantum computing uses something called qubits, so quantum bits. And the funny thing about qubits is that they don't necessarily have to be a one or a zero. They could be some combination of both. this is called superposition. Um, So what does that actually mean? Well, what it means is that a different type of logic, suddenly becomes applicable, which means you can solve a different type of computing problem with quantum computers. Uh, the problem with most normal computers is that they need to operate sequentially. So when you search through a list of files, what typically computers need to do is need to go open the file, then the next file, then the next file, then the next file until they find it. A quantum computer, is might sound and weird, but what a quantum computer does is it sort of looks in all files at the same time and then collapses onto the file that actually is the one that you're supposed to find. So you can do this, do to very complicated things called collapse of the wave function, uh, but you don't have to do this sequentially,
0: right?
1: Now this difference between sequential and non-sequential computing, that is really important because for instance, in pharmaceutical research, there's a problem called protein folding. Now, when you do pharmaceutical research, you build all these proteins that are very complicated 3D structures, that vaccines and such. And those tend to have, Folding mechanisms. So basically there's small static charges that make sure that this thing folds over in different ways. If you have to do this in classical computing, it takes a huge amount of time because you need to calculate so many different possibilities. In a quantum computer, you can calculate all of them at the same time. So not only is a quantum computer sometimes faster, it's not necessarily faster, it's just better at solving particular problems. And one of those problems turns out to be decrypting things. So a very concrete example the normal quantum uh, or the normal encryption protocol that's used most widely is something called the RSA protocol. And to explain this, we're going to have to do a little bit of math, and I apologize, Tom, but you're going to have to do some calculations. So an RSA protocol basically exists between two large numbers that you multiply together. You give these two numbers to the receiver, and they will know what the outcome of that particular number is, and that number is the key with which you can unlock the thing. So as an example, if I multiply 4 and eight together, how much is that? So we have 32. Exactly, that's very easy, right? That's a fairly easy problem. So one way, that problem is very easy. If I give you the two keys, then it's very easy to compute. If I now tell you, can you give me every possible combination of numbers that together make 32, it's a lot harder. That's like, okay, four times eight, two times 16, and one times 32, and 32 times one. So you see already where this is going, right? So one way of solving this problem is very easy, but the other way, there's a lot of possibilities. And obviously these are very, very large numbers, right? These are not like one-digit numbers. So what's, this is called a one-way function. And the reason why one-way functions are useful is because I can give you a very small amount of information that allows for a very large amount of possibilities to actually have to decrypt it backwards. A quantum computer can solve this problem backwards as well. What that means is that the RSA protocol this encryption protocol becomes useless because you can solve it very very fast under classical computing this takes something like the lifetime of the universe to actually solve Under a quantum computer it takes a couple of minutes to solve and that, that at its heart is why quantum computing and cybersecurity security have this huge problem namely i can decrypt basically everything that is used under classical
0: encryption yeah okay i, I actually think that's a very good explanation of um, a lot of the very difficult topics that we have there. Um, I apologize for the math. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. That, that's absolutely necessary to get to the core of it. Um, so what you're saying is that the, 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 quantum, computer is, the, the quantum computer isn't necessarily um, a supercomputer and better at everything than a classical computer. There's just a certain type of problem, for example, where you have to do a lot of things at the same time, mm-hmm. where a classical computer would have to do that step by step. For example, with the the RSA protocol, it would have to check all the various possibilities of prime factorization one at a time, and a quantum computer could do that simultaneously, and then collapse onto the solution that it needs. Um, Yep, exactly. That poses a very big problem because then, sort of, the encryption that we use, which is based on the fact that we know our classical computers can solve that, um, it's not valid anymore. This quantum yeah. would be able to the that. big
1: fear that exists right now is basically that there are some actors out there, uh, both corporate as well as private, um, uh, sorry, corporate as well as public, so China as well as Google, that are collecting all the data that's out there and are storing them in data vaults to keep them there because you can retroactively decrypt them, right? As long as you have the data and you have it encrypted there, once you have this quantum computer, you could start decrypting everything. So there's also a fairly large concern that um, once someone has a quantum computer, uh, by the way, the moment where you can actually do this, where a computer, a quantum computer exceeds capacity of a normal computer, that's called quantum supremacy. Now, once I reach quantum supremacy, why on earth would I tell anyone I have that thing? Because what I can now start doing is I can start decrypting everything. No one knows I have all this information. I can start making decisions based on that information. And that is kind of a fog of war type of effect that's, uh, that exists in the quantum realm. There's yep. no reason to disclose that you can actually do this.
0: That's actually very, because I, I can very much imagine that a public organization would very much feel that incentive, that if they reach quantum supremacy, then there's no incentive mm-hmm. whatsoever to tell that. Um, to what extent would that also hold for private institutions, such as a Google or an IBM wouldn't? Um, the surge of investments that they would get a, as a result of reaching quantum supremacy, be much more beneficial to them, but, or would the um, benefits they would get from reading all the data that no one can read? Well, for sure, it's a huge technological advantage. Um, the benefits of having
1: full information on everything that's super useful. On the other hand, it also lets you solve a lot of problems, right? So what we also wrote in the report is what you can expect is that a large... Most of the private sector actors are in the United States. So it's Google's, IBM's, Intel's, Microsoft, those kinds of actors. Um, that you wouldn't probably sell quantum computers yourself. You would sell um, cloud quantum computers. You basically sell access to the quantum computers to do some computations. Now, as I said, the pharmaceutical industry is one that's very, very interested in it. Uh, and you could definitely sort of rent time on a quantum computer. However, the mechanism itself, the encryption thing, uh, you would probably want to keep for yourself because this is. Essentially, weaponizable technology, and it's very, very useful technology. And definitely within the United States versus China dynamic, you would want to do whatever you can to keep your adversary, be it the United States or China, away from having this technology. So there is there is a lot invested in this, and it's um, there's a lot to be gained from having it, and there's even more to be gained from other people not having it when you have it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. We, we can sort of see that this is um, maybe becoming a form of an arms race of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, what's maybe interesting uh, about this type of arms race compared to uh, other ones that we had before in, in, in the Cold War, that rather than waiting for, there's going to be a moment when someone reaches quantum supremacy and then we need to be um, ready to defend ourselves because there is a possibility of storing the data and retroactively decrypting it we should already mm-hmm. be defending ourselves right now for when that moment yeah. comes. Um, yeah. So how do we do that?
1: So there's a couple different things. So uh, quantum computing itself falls within a larger realm of what's called quantum information sciences. Uh, and there's a couple of different things there. So one of them is the quantum computer itself. So that's the actual using quantum mechanics to compute things. A second school of thought is to use quantum mechanics to encrypt things. So uh, that's uh, called quantum key distribution. Basically what you're using is using quantum mechanics to uh, ensure that your uh, messages can never be intercepted. So I won't explain all of it because it's very complicated, but basically if you use quantum key distribution, it guarantees that when a message gets intercepted by an enemy or an adversary, it gets destroyed. So you can ensure that whenever information is leaked, it doesn't exist anymore. The third school of thought is called post-quantum cryptography. And that orients entirely around trying to find algorithms that encrypt that are quantum proof. So this problem that I just talked about, this one-way solution, this one-way function, uh, basically one-way functions that don't necessarily get any better when you have a quantum computing. You know, that last part, that's where a lot of the research is being done right now, and that's what would potentially help you prevent your data from being decrypted. Right? You basically need to replace all current RSA protocol with something that is uh, quantum proof, If you do that, then a large chunk of this this problem that all your data can retroactively be decrypted, that doesn't exist anymore. That doesn't take away any of the
0: advantages of having a quantum computer, but it does solve some of the problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's a very good point. Um, That's really also interesting to dive in because what we can sort of say is that there's, um, on the one hand, investments you can do in quantum computing itself, sort of playing on the Mm -hmm. offense, if you would like. Um, there's also the investment and the research going into um, the defense, which is making sure your encryptions protocol uh, are quantum proof, that sort of thing. Um, how is the world, like, is, is, is there a distinctive difference between oh, yes. China, the US, uh, Europe, in how they're playing offensive or a defense? What's the wise thing yeah. to do? Well, let's let's start with a bit of a lay of the land of what quantum
1: landscape looks like right now. So uh, generalizing a little bit, there are three regions that are relevant. That is the United States, uh, China, the People's Republic of China, and the European Union. And all three of these groups or blocks take a different approach towards quantum research. All three of them are funding it. Uh, They're investing billions of dollars into it. Although we'll see that there's also a large difference between them. Largely in the United States, the private sector is in the lead. So it's the large corporate parties, the Googles of the world, that are doing a lot of research on quantum computing. Very large research budgets, um, mostly oriented around getting this quantum hardware so the computer itself ready. So the actual chips that need to do it. There is some level of coordination from the government. Uh, There was a flagship project that was supposed to be something like $1.25 billion over 10 years. Uh, under the National Institute for Standards of Technology. So there is some effort to try and standardize it, but mostly it's the large corporate parties that are taking the lead, which is very American, of course. The other extreme is China. China is investing $10 billion a year into quantum computing, Uh, just set up a huge research institute on um, quantum computing as well. Uh, And in their domain uh, the first of all there's kind of a difficult distinction between private and, and public sectors um, but mostly it's the public sector in the league so this is research that is subsidized and structurally funded underneath the Chinese government through research universities etc what they're really good at is especially space based um, quantum technology so this is this is kind of a cool thing they have a laser or a satellite that can basically Communicates securely between Vienna and uh, Beijing. And it does so by shooting little photons out of the laser. Uh, It's really, really cool from a nerd point of view. Uh, It also has pretty big problems because the thing doesn't work if it's cloudy or if the sun is shining because it's a laser. So it gets blocked out. Uh, But China is very, very good at um, the space based infrastructure and also quite good at just getting the systematic level funding there. And obviously, they have a very different data privacy ecosystem than. We do Now the finally, there's Europe. Europe walks a bit of a middle path. Um, in Europe, mostly the academic institutions are in the lead. So what Europe is quite good at is a manufacturing some of the components required for quantum computing. So Germany in particular has a very good engineering, very German. Um, but there's also a question of algorithms. So it stands to reason that if your computer thinks in a completely different way that's non-binary, your algorithms, your code, would need to be changed as well. So these are called quantum algorithms. This is a whole field of research. There's an institute actually in Amsterdam called NICAF and the CWI that are known to be sort of the, the leaders on quantum algorithms as well. So you need all three of these things, right? So you need the infrastructure to actually operate this damn thing. You need the actual chips to build the thing, to actually compute things. And you need the algorithms to actually run, you know, code um, through these things as well. So all three of them have some relative levels of merit. I will point out the ambition level for the Chinese far exceeds anything seen in Europe or in the United States. Barring potentially the budgets of Google and these kinds of places. Uh, but the Chinese are much more structural in funding it. They're much more ambitious in funding it. And they're much more overt in funding their admissions as well. So they really see this as part of the um, China fourth, revolution, fourth uh, technological revolution. Part of AI, part of quantum, uh, part of uh, you know, like big data, etc. cetera. But the last thing I'll say about this landscape is an interesting one for Europe. So Europe has a flagship project called the Quantum Flagship. I believe that's 1 billion euros funded for 10 years. So over 10 years. This is not a huge amount of, well, it sounds like a huge amount of money. It's not compared to the other research budgets. What you have in Europe that's kind of a problem is that more money is being directed to national research budgets, the UK, Germany, et cetera, then towards the EU level. This has some merit as well. But what Europe can do, is kind of interesting because um, are you familiar by any chance with the California effect? I don't think so, no. Okay. So the California effect is an economic effect. Um, Basically, the largest car market in the United States is California. Um, 37 million people, I believe, live there. If you sell a car that is unsellable in California, it's a useless car. What that means in practice is that when California sets a regulatory standard for emissions, that all the other states in the nation will follow. Not because California has legal power, or some sort of like authority, but because again, selling a car that you can sell in California is pointless. So this economic effect of needing to adjust your standards to California, just to be able to make an economic gain, that's called the California effect. Europe has something very similar in the form of the GDPR. So the GDPR is the uh, data protection regulation that was passed a couple of years ago. Um, Most advanced data regulation in the world. Um, Europe is also the second largest consumer market in the world. So what the GDPR did is it forced a bunch of American companies as well as a couple of South Asian nations, Southeast Asian nations to adopt their own versions of GDPR to be able to continue selling in the European states. So suppose that Europe loses its tech race they could still try and sort of regulate the landscape by trying to set standards through things like GDPR. So to use this sort of regulatory power to still be influential. Preferably, you would also lead in technology. But if you can't, then this other one is a good option.
0: That is actually a very interesting point. Um, So on, on the one hand, we talked earlier about sort of this arms race, about sort of seeing which economic block would get to the quantum computing first. Um, then at the same time, we're also talking about how, um, not everyone is playing the exact same game. Perhaps the US is focusing more on the chips, Chinese more on the infrastructure. Uh, we might be focusing on somewhere else. Um, to, to, to what extent is it even feasible for only one uh entity to fully develop the quantum computer? Like Isn't the knowledge? That much distributed that we need the entire world and the entire ecosystem to get to that quantum computer.
1: Yeah, um, so it's interesting because these, like, if you want to stereotype a little bit, these interests kind of also reflect the interest, the geopolitical interest of these groups, right? The the private parties are most interested in selling this quantum computing power to pharmaceutical industry, this sort of stuff, right? So they need to chip. Um, the Chinese are interested in infrastructure because one of the things they're trying to do is to try and set up a secure communication network through the entire PRC that can never be intercepted. So to have completely non-transparent communication everywhere, including connections to Xinjiang province and Beijing um, for obvious reasons. So that again makes sense. And in Europe, the, the, uh, like I said, the educational institutes are in the lead, the academic institutes and they are most interested in solving these, some theoretical problems on code. Um, all three of these things are necessary. This is not to say also that the Chinese don't do algorithms or chips, right? They do. Just like Google does do the infrastructure and the algorithms as well. It's just that the focus is slightly different. And again, money equals ambition in this case. Um, the Chinese are funding it way over what everyone else is doing. Whether that's enough, that's a question. But if it is an arms race, then the prospects for China look pretty good, as they do in a lot of other tech competitions these days.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so, yeah, that arms race is still somewhat going on. And that brings, indeed, to the uh, last point that you made, which I thought was really interesting, that even if we as the the EU, for example, don't succeed in um, sort of winning that technological arms race, then it doesn't necessarily need to be the end of the game, because there's still a possibility for us regulate our own market and Mm -hmm. by using the california effect having an influence on the rest of the world so um are we then talking about for example regulating the market in terms of uh, pharmaceutical companies or other companies that might want to use um, quantum computation because i reckon for example with gdpr that was very much Mm -hmm. focused on the data privacy of um, citizens but i I reckon it's not that uh, obvious that citizens will use quantum computation. I reckon we'll uh, mostly Mm -hmm. see that with corporations or other institutions. So will that be regulated in a sort of way?
1: It depends. Um, So this is also a much larger sort of sea change in Europe. Um, And this has more to do with to the geopolitics changing as a whole. So to give a very short recap, after the fall of the wall, basically, the idea was more or less that Fukuyama was right, that the end of history was correct. That neo, that liberalization of economics would invariably lead to liberalization of politics and uh, political structure as well. So basically free trade creates democracies. And therefore we've reached the end of history and we're all going to become living in a democracy. So yay free trade. Right? So There was an alignment basically between the economic benefits of free trade and the ideological goals of Western democracies. No, we're now 30 years after the fall of the wall. Turns out that's just not true. Free trade does liberalize a little bit, sometimes, um, but China is not a democracy, It's definitely not a democracy. In fact, it's getting worse. So there has been this decoupling of that free trade necessarily always furthers the interest of the West. That realization um, within the European Union is problematic because the European Union has always had this attitude of um, a level playing field. That's what we want. We don't want to create national champions. We don't want to subsidize particular industries. We don't want to subsidize BMW over Peugeot. It needs to all be equal. It needs to be level, It needs to be very neoliberal. It's all market competition. That becomes a problem when you find actors like China that are structurally subsidizing particular industries that then have huge advantages over um, sort of normal market forces, right? You're basically pricing people out. You can look at solar panels, you can look at uh, Huawei phones, etc. The Americans do something that's somewhat similar in the abstract. The Americans basically fund a huge amount of r and research that they then put in the public domain. So, the iPhone, for instance, is built on mostly military research, like quartz liquid screen glasses and this sort of stuff. Right? So, they're also structurally funding it, but in a different way. Europe now needs to make a decision. So, um, the reflex of Europe to say, we're not going to subsidize any particular industry, it should all be market forces. At the same time, Europe says that we're going to leverage the uh, access to the economic markets, the Eurozone, um, and take into consideration things like environmental rights and human rights. Now, in practice, we haven't done that. In practice, consumers care more about having cheap H&M clothes than they care about child labor in Bangladesh. Now, that needs to change somewhat because you need to actually start leveraging this market. Like the market, the EU market is the second largest in the world, hugely prosperous, and everyone's access to it. So if you can start lifting some leverage or setting some regulation on, okay, you can have access to this market, but only for these kinds of things, that's one way you could do it, right? So you could say, the, just an example, the Chinese can't get access to the European market unless they stop doing their business in Xinjiang. That would be an option. Right? That has implications, that's complicated, et cetera, but it's an option. The other option they have, because uh, this is kind of outward looking, the other option is to demarcate particular sectors within your economy as being of strategically vital importance. So some of this already exists. exist. So critical infrastructure, for instance, energy, um, because when you do that, you open up a whole range of other legislative tools that allow you to structurally protect, containerize, and invest in those sectors. There's a lot of people that are saying that things like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, but also semiconductor manufacturing, should all be part of that, um, that sort of securitized part of the economy. And that leads us to this kind of interesting thing where uh, you know, like com- companies like ASML would like to sell to China, uh, but it's technologically sensitive um, and geopolitically sensitive kinds of exchanges. So you're starting to deal with kind of these marked competition forces that need to be securitized. So what you're really dealing with is that geopolitics, and geopolitical competitions become part of the price of doing business, but that's not reflected in the price that consumers see. Right? The case in point is Huawei. Huawei sells super cheap stuff that is as good, if not better than some of the European equivalents. Right? People debate about that, whether or not it's better, but it's cheap, it's really cheap. So economically speaking, you'd be stupid to not use Huawei. It does the same job and it's like half the price. But geopolitically speaking, you'd be stupid to take Huawei because you've outsourced all your innovative capacity to this like not really fairly gained technology. But that price difference is not actually priced in. And that's the challenge that the European Union has now is this, these outside competitive forces, the United States, uh, China, arguably in the future also India, uh, the African nations, all of these things have competitive like undertones. And that's not reflected in the price signal. And that's something that needs to be corrected. That's a long-winded answer. Um, yeah. I hope that that's clear. Yeah. <laughs> Let me no, know if you no. need to go back and
0: clarify anything. <laughs> no, that, that's a very interesting one. So um, what you're saying is that our main uh, bargaining power as the EU is sort of the market and the access that, um, yeah. that external parties can have to our market. And up until now, we've been so obsessed with a sort of vision of free market. Everyone should have access to uh, a free trade and whatnot. that we're Mm -hmm. actually not utilizing that benefit. Um, Exactly. And this is kind of, this is the blunt truth about the European Union
1: is that economically it's mature. Um, Militarily, it's kind of adolescent. Uh, Geopolitically, it's infant because uh, foreign affairs is not invested into the European Union. It's invested into the nation states, uh, national governments. Which means that what the Chinese are doing is they're playing out every one of the European Union actors one by one, case in point again of Huawei, instead of having a sort of collective approach. Because no one wants to actually see the authorities
0: in Brussels, but divided you're a lot weaker than we stand together. Yeah, so in this, um, in the context of this issue, which actually is saying that um, in order for the EU to actually uh, Face this problem head on and make sure that it sort of can protect the market and use the bargaining power. We need to have a much stronger sort of Ministry of Foreign Affairs on an EU level. Um, because yep. by having all the individual member states, there's the, the, the just a total lack of coordination, and um, it's also the bargaining power also gets distributed over every member state, so it's much less impressive to any external um, yeah, a party exactly. And there,
1: there are efforts underway. So the, the von der Leyen put in a geopolitical commission. So geopolitics is back on the agenda of the European Union. Um, but you know, you're trying to overturn basically 30 years of a particular doctrine of foreign policy, which is neoliberal policy. And that takes a long time. We can zoom out a little bit and talk about COVID because COVID has had this very interesting effect on kind of accelerating this discussion. So basically, what we saw under COVID is basically a collapse of like global world trade, and we saw this sort of economic freeze, um, globally also in the Netherlands. Now, COVID has accelerated a whole bunch of different trends that already existed. So, competition between the United States and China, technological competition between the United States, China, and Europe, climate change, all this sort of stuff. The, the problem was always that the cost of changing course was so high that no one wanted to do it. Right. The cost of a trade war with China on both sides hurt so much that no one ever wanted to do it. But now having done that, having gotten across the initial cost, in part because we're COVID, a whole range of new strategic shifts become possible because you already, you already paid for it anyway. So why not do it? So this is what we call decoupling. Um, decoupling of China and the United States, decoupling of technological ecosystems, but also decoupling of carbon um, from the economy. Right. So all these things were prohibitively expensive before, Have become relevant now or were already relevant and have been accelerated by COVID. And now we're in sort of a new paradigm of geopolitics that lends itself to different kinds of decisions. So it's a very interesting time to be thinking about foreign policy. Um, And, you know, like particular technologies, semiconductors, artificial intelligence, and quantum are going to be really, really important for the next couple of years.
0: Yes, that's actually a very interesting point. So the, um, the, of set of possibilities that we can choose from has uh, expanded or changed in a sense that mm-hmm. things that would have been ridiculous to do from the perspective of game theory, because there's no good reason why this would be optimal for any two parties. By having had this situation like COVID, where um, we've had to make some um, disastrous decisions that were necessary, a whole new mm-hmm. uh, array of options becomes available. Um, yep what kind of options are available to the EU that weren't reasonable before? If we talk about strategic autonomy or um, protecting our internal market, um. Um,
1: Well, one thing is a European army, that's something that's becoming increasingly relevant. So so again, a bit of a history lesson is that um, the discussion of burden sharing is relevant now from the United States' perspective. It used to always be that the Americans really didn't want to have a European army because they thought it would be a sort of uh, a rival to NATO, and they they liked NATO. Um, There's a huge amount of troops still American troops still in Europe. Now, the Americans have decided correctly that Europe is no longer the most important geopolitical zone in the world. It used to be during the Cold War because of the Soviet Union. They've decided now that East Asia is the most important region in the world. So what they want to do is they want to pull troops out of Europe and reallocate those to be in the East, East Asian theater where they're needed. Now that means that the Europeans need to start actually caring for themselves, right? They need to actually have their own troops. Whether that's the European army or not, that's not a question, but the Europeans need to start pulling their own weight. And they've been underneath the NATO norm of 2% of GDP for defense for decades now. So they've never been willing to actually invest into the defense side of it. That's one thing that's kind of changing. Um, I'll leave it there for now.
0: Um, does that answer your question? yeah 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 I, I think yeah maybe, maybe what's interesting to look at is um indeed what we discussed before the internal market and how that's like the main bargaining power that the eu mm. has yeah um to what extent right. is it easier now to impose certain um, trade barriers or anything else than it was before, maybe because trade has sort of um, had it's, a pause on it It's not necessarily legislatively easier.
1: I'm not, a, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know per se, but what I will say is that on both sides of the Atlantic and actually also on both sides of the political spectrum, uh, economic protectionism has become popular, right? Both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump talk about how tr- free trade ruins everything. Um, so both the far left and the far right, we can debate about those terms. Um, has decided that free trade is not necessarily the way to go anymore. So that, that is a very big change. And you also see that a little bit in, um, in the Netherlands as well, in the contemporary like, political environment. So there is a lot of animo now for protectionism. The advantages of globalized free trade have been considerable. They've made uh, the whole world a lot wealthier. So economically speaking has been a great success story, but environmentally speaking, Equality speaking, and geopolitically speaking, it's been not particularly good. Um, and that realization is starting to appear now. So the draagvlak the um, willingness of the community to actually accept economic measures that are protectionist, has increased quite a bit now. So that that
0: is yeah. a change. It's not a legislative change, but it is a political change. Yeah, no, no fair enough. Um... So maybe sort of to get back on all the points that, that we discussed about the internal market, uh, about quantum computing, uh, sort of leveraging that in the global context. Suppose we got a call from uh, Ursula von der Leyen right now, president of the European Commission. And her main question is, mm-hmm. what should we, we focus on? What should we do? Would um, Should we invest more money into research? Should we um, sort of make our foreign affairs on an EU level more mature? Um, What would be your main recommendation to uh, Ursula, to the European Commission, to European Parliament, to the EU as a whole right now? What what is the main thing that we're missing?
1: I would say that you should focus on uh, basically European technological complex. Um, Europe has a lot of the semiconductor manufacturers in the world, but they're all kind of fragmented, right? So ASML, the Dutch company, is actually number 11 in the world. Semiconductors is the new oil of geopolitics. Uh, China currently eats something like 25% of the world's capacity of semiconductors, but it only has 14% of the production capacity, and it's a hugely thirsty economy. Um, If you coordinate this to keep innovating, innovating in semiconductors in these kinds of gateway technologies, you can control geopolitics a little bit because you're still a relevant actor. If you see particular fields to the Chinese, or it's for that matter, if you see sustainable energy, and if you see semiconductor manufacturing to the Chinese, then you're doomed, right? Like it'll be 50 years before there's a different kind of geopolitical technology, different kind of dynamic that'll let you get back to the game. Uh, you have to get ahead of it and it requires structural investment. It requires taking away uncertainty because companies hate uncertainty. They will not invest if, if it's uncertain. And increased geopolitics inherently means increased uncertainty. So it is for the European Union to get a little bit off this idea of neoliberalism all the way, free markets all the way, and to think, what what are your assets? Actively leveraging the European market, the the Eurozone, actively leveraging the huge amount of innovative knowledge and technological competency that we have, and if possible, collaborate with Americans as well, some sort of transatlantic collaboration, perhaps, on semiconductors. If you can't do that, then you should also be able to see what you can do with the Chinese. There's a couple of interesting, like Taiwan, um, that'll be relevant, but you need to have
0: a coherent foreign policy. You need to have a strategy. You need to determine what are your assets, and how do you play them out. Yeah, thanks so much, Paul, for that answer. I think that's a really nice uh, summary of all the things that we discussed. Um with that also, thanks so much for this interview. Uh, that was mainly focused on quantum computation encryption. We might have gotten off topic sometimes, but I think uh, that was very much for the better. Uh, and our participants were very much appreciated listening to this interview in preparation for the session. Um, so thanks so much for having been with us today.
1: Thank you very much for having me. And uh, thank you for the interesting discussion. I hope uh, the listeners enjoyed it as well. And you can also find some more of our research on, uh, on our website and on Twitter, etc. You know where to find us.
0: Yes, we will definitely share that. Okay, thanks so much.